Welcome to the third season of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I am Jessica Price, your host. In this season, we're exploring perspectives on the Family First Prevention and Services Act. We are talking with child welfare leaders and community advocates about how Family First will impact our state. Let's get started. Today on the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast, we're covering how leaders are transforming Florida's residential group homes through creating quality standards. I'm excited to welcome Zandra Odom from the Department of Children and Families and Dr. Shamra Bostut from the College of Social Work here at Florida State University. Thank you both for being here. Zandra, could you give us an idea of what brought you into child welfare? Yes. So thank you for having me. So I am a Army brat. Grew up with my family traveling with military, different places, different countries, meeting all different people. So when I got into college, I wanted—I knew I wanted to go into a field that would allow me to interact with a lot of different people. And so really just be able to help different people. And so I think just being in a military family kind of led me to wanting to be into the child welfare field. Got it. Awesome. And Shamra, what brought you into doing this work? I think like like Zandra, I had an interest in going into a field where I felt like I could help people as well. And so I started out right out of my undergrad working in residential group care and spent about eight years working in two different facilities. So I, I kind of got to know the work in that area in that way. And then from there, I was interested in furthering my education. I got my MSW at the University of Iowa in social work, and they have a, a child welfare resource center there that provides training and technical assistance mm-hmm. and research. And that sort of opened up a, an avenue for me to expand the child welfare work that I was doing, because when I was working in residential care within the setting, you can encounter a lot of roadblocks. There's only so much you can do to help the kids and sometimes it feels like or I found myself feeling like I'd like to do more Mm -hmm. more research or something Mm -hmm. to support the work in this area through my MSW program in connection with the resource center I was able to step into that role and start doing training and technical assistance and working in on federally funded research and so got that experience which it's been great and I've continued to draw upon that in the work that I've done here in Florida and in my partnering with the Florida Department of Children and Families. So it's been, it's been great. And so that's kind of uh, what led me down this path. Wow. I don't think I knew that you worked you know, on the front lines, essentially, in residential group care. I can't wait to hear how that really informs the work you're doing today. That's really important. Yeah, it has been. It has been. I think it, from my initial connection with that subset of kids, I've never lost that. I always saw that as a group of kids who really stood out as needing some champions, some advocates, some people who would stay connected with them. And so I've, I've kind of hung on to that. Yeah, I know when Shamra and I, when we first started with this project, that was one thing that we talked about was that our very first jobs were in residential group care. So I, too, like we we had talked about it, started with the residential group care facility, all girls. And I always say, you know, that's how I got my gray hair. When I when I go out in the community, I'm like, you see this gray hair? Because that population, there's definitely the need there to want to be able to help and to want to be able to mentor and, and, and do all of that for them. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is a power team here. (laughs) Love it. Love it. So I know that our state is readying for Family First 
Prevention and Services Act. So I wanted to start with you, Zandra, to tell our listeners, what is this policy all about? (laughs) All right. So FFPSA, the acronym, or Family First Prevention Services Act, Family First, as as some people call it as well, it is a um, an act that was signed into law back in February of 2018. It is part of the bipartisan budget bill. So just think of those words, bipartisan budget bill. So at its core, the Family First, this act is intended to reform child welfare spending. Child welfare is primarily funded through Title IV-E funding, as well as Title IV-B funding. And I'll just give a little bit of, of background. Prior to the act, states were allowed to participate in what was called the Title IV-E waiver demonstration. And so that waiver demonstration allowed states to basically have flexibility with Title IV-E funding so that they can do special demonstration projects with the intent being to improve the outcomes of children who are involved with the child welfare system of care. So the flexibility was you didn't have to worry about was the child eligible for Title IV-E funding? Was the setting eligible for Title IV-E funding? Was the service eligible for Title IV-E funding? Because 4-E covers either for an eligible child and an eligible setting for eligible service. So there's eligibility requirements for funding, obviously. And so that waiver demonstration went on for some years. Florida was part of the waiver demonstration, and we had ours since October of 2006. And then from that, states were saying, you know what, we can do so much with Title IV-E funding if we were able to fund prevention services, which is what a lot of the states were doing with the Title IV-E funding. And so when the Family First Act came along, that is exactly what it did. It said, okay, we hear you states loud and clear. You you want dollars to fund prevention services, so we have to balance that out. And so what it says is that states are allowed to spend Title IV-E funding on evidence-based prevention services, but only after limiting your spending for congregate care settings. So that's the balancing act that FFPSA does. So it does require states to really think outside of the box of how they're going to install to fidelity and sustain evidence-based services in their service array and then also how they're going to shore up and align their placement settings so that first and foremost, we can find families, relatives, non-relatives who can take care of our kiddos, then foster care, family foster care settings, then congregate care settings if needed. And for the congregate care settings, there are specified settings that would be eligible for Title IV-E funding. Mm -hmm. And so there are another host of different provisions. Those are the main provisions of the Family First. Um, It does provide some funding for kinship care. It does require states to make sure that they have a interstate compact system, electronic system in place. It also requires that states change their background screening requirements for group care settings as well. There's different background requirements for Title IV-E. It requires that states have a plan for their child fatality, how they look at child fatalities, how they address and how they try to prevent child fatalities due to abuse or neglect. And so there's a host of different provisions for FFPSA, but the ones that are the two 
that are commonly talked about is the reform of funding because it does allow for the first time after coming off of the waiver demonstration for states to use funding for prevention services, but also requiring the limitation for the out-of-home care. I have heard a description of Family First so many times, but that one was really, really helpful. And I hope that the listeners really took a lot from that. So I appreciate that description. Now I want to turn to Shamra. I want to hear about the work that you're doing. I know that we've been funding your residential quality standards group care work for maybe three or so years now. So yeah, can you tell us about your work? Yeah, so the group care quality standards initiative began in late 2014. And it was really the coming together of the Florida Coalition for Children, which is comprised of residential care providers and service providers throughout the state, and the Department of Children and Families the Institute and some other research entities were brought on to serve in that capacity of bringing the research to the group. But this group was tasked with identifying some quality practice standards for residential care. And part of what was going on that led up to that work group being formulated is there was a lot of and longstanding discourse around residential care. And if you look at things like FFPSA, the Quality Standards Initiative, there's other transformation initiatives like through the Association of Children's Residential Center and the Child Welfare League of America. But all of that kind of centers on this underlying, I think, agreement that how residential care was being utilized needed to be thought through a little more and and to kind of engage in a process of figuring out how do we best use this modality in the child welfare system. And so with the residential group care work group here in Florida, the the emphasis was on the, the understanding there was that residential care provides an important placement setting for youth with higher level needs. But maybe we can identify some practice standards to help ensure that when children are placed in those settings, they're getting high quality and Ideally, high quality leads to more effective care. And so the work group then went to the research and identified a a set of quality standards that were our research-informed or best practice, Mm -hmm. and then kind of from that established a set of 59 quality practice standards spanning eight domains, ranging from the first domain, which are practices all about how do we engage in assessment, use that information to inform treatment planning, and other aspects of the treatment planning process all the way through how we approach transition and discharge planning and then everything in between. So it's a very comprehensive set of standards. Mm. And then from that, once we had the standards established, the the group didn't want to stop there. They wanted to be able to utilize these in practice. And so that's where we developed the group care quality standards assessment, which is designed to tap into those 59 standards across those eight domains to assess how residential programs are performing on those quality standards or to what extent are they consistently engaging in those practices. And so that's that's kind of the, the gist of mm-hmm. the quality standards initiative. And at this point, it's been piloted. We did an initial feasibility pilot because how it's being implemented in Florida 
is the assessment is built into the relicensing process, which is ideal because then that helps to facilitate this large-scale uptake of a universal set of standards. And that provides uh, a mechanism for ongoing assessment and continuous quality improvement and assurance. And so I think that is really an ideal way to utilize an assessment like this if you want to actually move it from theory into practice. Thank you so much. Now, this is going to lead into a discussion around how do we merge these two topics. We've learned about family first. We've learned about your RGC project. So can we talk about the fact that Florida does rely on group care for some of our kids? And there are some requirements that are coming down through this policy and how do they overlap, the compatibility of it? Just kind of lead me down a conversation with how we're preparing and getting ready for that. Absolutely. Shimmer talked about how we did the feasibility study. We did a a pilot. And so we were coming off of that first small group pilot, like six months, and we were scheduled to present to the DCF department secretary on February the 9th in 2018. And so when we were coming off of the small group project, Family First was being signed into law. And so we showed up to the meeting and that actually was how we kind of started the meeting uh, was the secretary was like, "Okay, this just got signed into law right around, you know, I think 12.08 a.m. And it was an interesting conversation because we had to then kind of shift a little bit and talk about how these particular standards are research informed. And the whole goal was for these standards to be a core set of standards for any particular licensed residential care setting that was taking care of children. And so we we had done a lot of work to make sure that they were research informed to the point that a lot of the standards that we had already set in place, they married very nicely with FFPSA. But we did go go back and kind of crosswalk what the requirements were in FFPSA. FPSA to really tease out, do we have the right set of standards? And we found that we did. One of the things that FFPSA talks about for what they call specified or specialized residential settings is it talks about providing quality care. And so Obviously, the quality standards, that's what's intended to do. But then it also, FFPSA also talks about providing trauma-informed. So having a trauma-informed care, trauma-informed treatment modality, treatment method for for serving youth. And so there is a trauma-informed checklist as a part of the standards. And so we really did see that we had covered a lot of what was in FFPSA, and there wasn't a whole lot of tweaking that we really had to do. I mean, I, th- I, I would just echo what, what Zandra said, is that it seemed to be that the research and those members of the work group were already tuned into the quality elements that, that's reflected in FFPSA are, are seen as important. And so that was already wrapped into those standards. And it, it was great because in some regards, it, it put us a little bit ahead of the game. We're not having to mm-hmm. change perspectives. Mm-hmm. They, they're already being utilized and understood and embraced. And it wasn't, while FFPSA, when it became law, was a, a stopping point for, for folks to, and child welfare to kind of try to figure out where we're going and, and what we're doing with it. 
it was a law that was years in the making. And mm-hmm. so as a part of the work group, we did have members on the work group that had some of the knowledge of some of those items. Even in Florida, there was the attempt to put in different things in the Florida statues regarding residential group care a year or two back. And so, I mean, some of those things were like having to be accredited, having to have quality, having to be trauma-informed. And so those, because those elements are kind of years in the making, I do think that a lot of the work that went into the quality standards, we were in a good place that we aligned very well with FFPSA. So for example, I think I read something recently that said FFPSA is requiring group homes to have, whether it's a clinical nurse or uh, LCSW on staff, how does that marry with the Mm -hmm. RGC? Is that a part of the quality standards that they have to have certain people Mm -hmm. on staff? So for FFPSA, it does specify that there are certain settings that will be eligible for Title IV-E funding. So mm-hmm. at the very minimum, when a youth comes, a child or youth comes into out-of-home care, those first 14 days in out-of-home care placement, a licensed placement, Title IV-E funding is available. But as of day 15, that child has to be in what FFPSA determines to be an eligible setting for continual Title IV-E funding. And so those eligible settings are, first and foremost, a licensed relative, non-relative, or a licensed foster parent. And if not in in a relative, non-relative, or foster parent, then If it's going to be group care um, or residential care, uh, then it has to be a certain residential care setting that is specific to the needs of that child. So maybe pregnant and parenting youth, that is one setting that's eligible. At risk of sex trafficking, or already a victim of sex trafficking is one, maybe 18 and older population. So we have our extension of foster care population that's still eligible for 4E funding. And then that last setting that you're referencing is the Qualified Residential Treatment Program. And so this is a program that's intended to be for residential treatment for that child that's involved in the child welfare system of care. There are definitely a full listing of requirements for that setting. It must be delivering a trauma-informed modality. There must be that clinical component that is available Mm 24-7 as determined by the treatment model. So I know for me, when I was in um, residential care and I was serving there, our nurse, they came in twice a week. But if I was working the 11 to 7 shift overnight and I needed a nurse, I can definitely call someone. Our licensed social worker and our licensed mental health counselors, they were there 8 to 5 every day, Monday through Friday, and they would see the kids as needed. So again, it's based off of whatever treatment modality is being delivered. And so then there's also the components of having to be accredited, having to provide a minimum of six months aftercare once the child leaves that leaves that residential facility as well. So it does lay out in FFPSA what a qualified residential treatment program should look like, and it's intended to make sure that they serve that level of care for, for that youth. Right, right. So I, I love talking about this because this entire podcast is about transforming our system. And and I think you used the word earlier that they're transforming the funding through family first. But sometimes when that type of change comes, people are nervous and 
people are a little bit unsteady. So I'd love just kind of hear from you about what you've been hearing from the field. Are people ready? Are they nervous? And how do you assuage that? So it, it definitely has been quite a bit of a, of a challenge and, and a change. It is changing your funding streams and it is changing what placement settings are available, Title IV-E funded available. Of course, other funding streams are still possibly available. Florida, you know, back in the 2018 when it first started, we took time to make sure that we understood the requirements. That was participating in any of the federal conversations we could participate in, talking with other states, talking to stakeholders, really just kind of combing through all of the requirements. Because again, it was, it's, it's multiple provisions. So, and when all of this was coming about, Florida was also in what we call our Path Forward Initiative, where we were coming off of the Title IV e-waiver and we were having to basically level set our system back to traditional Title IV e-claiming. We had several different initiatives going on that was requiring a lot of our attention. And so it was kind of a competing priorities. So we continued on with our Path Forward initiatives, but then we also took time to just learn about FFPSA, learn about it, see where our systems were, where where our policies were, how we aligned, how we didn't align, where our gaps were, and what our service needs were. And there were several different statewide work groups in place. We had a service array work group in place that was looking at our services. Were they evidence-based? What was the utilization of it? What was the wait list? What was the needs in the community? We also had a placement array work group going on looking at hard-to-place kids, our needs with our foster parents. So all of those initiatives were already in place, and we tried to leverage those initiatives, learn from what they were doing. Uh, And then, of course, we had to basically roll up our sleeves and get to work, so to speak. So from 2018, then we fast forward to 2019, and we started having more of the stakeholder engagement activities, really partnering with our other agencies. One of the interesting things about FFPSA is it does require that the states attest that they're not negatively impacting the juvenile justice system by changing their placement policies and placement setting requirements to align with FFPSA. So we've had to be cognizant of that. And so the state was already doing a lot of work with our crossover youth and our crossover champions throughout the state. We have one um, in each of the different circuits who are heavily involved with our local review team staffing. So a lot of the work we really just tried to leverage and build on, not try to start from the, the ground up. We really wanted to say, okay, this is what we're doing now. Let's assess it. Let's see what the gaps are, and let's see where we can build from. What about you, Shamra? Do you hear any challenges and pushback maybe or nerves around these changes, particularly associated with the quality standards that you're trying to implement? I think that initially there were concerns about how are we going to respond to there's concerns about the reduction of available placements. I mean, this will result in that. And so how are we going to fill that gap while ensuring that negative consequences don't land on on children by seeing a spike in the number of placement changes and things like that? 
FFPSA was passed in 2018, and so now people have had time to sort of think about it. But FFPSA, I think the best way to look at it when it comes to residential care is really as an opportunity to revision. It's a longstanding need to really revision and find residential care's best right place on the child welfare continuum. So I think, by and large, I'm, I'm seeing that. There are still concerns because we, we, we haven't been at this very long, and so some of those consequences about how the higher-risk kids are going to fare through all of this is still very much a concern. And, and also related to that, do we have some mechanism in place to track that, to make sure that we're, we're not losing track of our, our already higher-risk kids? And then I would say I've actually seen a, an increase in interest in residential programs and and kind of embracing quality initiatives. I I think that it's growing in scope. I mean, just last week we were talking with another state about the work we're doing here in Florida, and we've had several conversations like that. So I think that I'm seeing that as a good thing that can come out of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know you use the term revision and re-envisioning residential group care in our state. So I wanted to also ask the question of how are we, what is Florida's approach to integrating our efforts with the Florida accountability system and family first? Mm -hmm. So the accountability system is really going to be built from the quality standards Mm -hmm. and the quality standards has that assessment process that's built into the relicensing process. All of it actually marries nicely that when we land and and actually finish our our project, we will have a group care accountability system as required in Florida statute. So we want to make sure we remember that this is actually a requirement to build the accountability system. And so we have a deadline of July of 2022 to finish. And so the accountability system will then allow us to be able to see how our group homes measure out in the different domains. And there's eight different domains that take you through from emission to your to your program requirements to to the culture in the group home all the way through to discharge and post-discharge. And so while Each setting is different. So a maternity home is different from a a qualified residential treatment program. There are still core elements. And so the quality standards are looking at those core elements for any particular group home that's taking care of a child in the child welfare system of care. And so they'll look at those core elements and we'll be able to see those standards and how the group homes rate. It is not a single score. But it's looking at the different domains and where your strengths are and where your areas of improvement are. And there's not a requirement either that when, when we stand up the accountability system, that now all of a sudden there's a group home that maybe their strengths are in emissions, but their areas of improvement could be the discharge area. And so if they were a qualified resident treatment program, they definitely would want to look at those areas of improvement for discharge because that's a key element of the Qualified Residential Treatment Program. But it will be up to that group home provider, that community-based care agency that they're working with, and that local licensing specialist to sit down and have those conversations. So the accountability system is really meant to 
formally provide feedback so that there is a formal, continuous quality improvement process in place that everyone can come sit at the table mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is what we're seeing, and these are areas that we should be looking to improve in. And it's not all on just the residential provider to say, okay, I can do X, Y, and Z. It's also for the department to look at some trends and say, okay, how can I also come to the table and help improve the quality of residential care across the state. And then for the CBCs, our community-based care agencies mm-hmm. within the area to say, okay, how can I also come to the table and offer? So it's, it's really meant to be a quality improvement opportunity mm-hmm. for all that's involved. Wow. I love what you said, Shammer, earlier about this is an opportunity to revision group care And it just marries so well with what you just said, because it sounds like the accountability system in many ways are preparing people if they're a QRTP. You can look at this assessment or this accountability program and say, if I want to be a QRTP, if I want to maintain that, I have to improve on these on these segments. I think that the work you're doing is incredible. And I think that you are impacting so many kids. And I get people's opinions about group care all the time. And I always sing your praises and people say, well, we shouldn't be focusing on group care. But the intricacies of what you all are doing are transforming what group care could really be. And that's why I'm just always amazed by it. Because as you both know, people have feelings about group care. But I don't think they've put their time into it the way you all have. So that's why I'm always talking about that. So, Shammer, you're up next. I'd love to hear, and I want the listeners to know what's next for RGC. Yeah, so for the Quality Standards Project, we are currently in data collection mode for actually a couple different studies. So we have the statewide validation studies. I mentioned earlier we did a feasibility pilot that was really looking at can we embed this effectively in the licensing system, and we got through another pilot some additional feedback on the items. Then we did the statewide pilot. And along the way, we're collecting psychometric data, looking at the reliability and validity of the tool. But what we're currently doing is kind of like the final big test of the validity of the tool. So we have accumulated some very promising initial evidence supporting both the reliability and validity of the assessment. And then we also have a supplement looking at the inter-rater reliability, specifically of the licensing form. The licensing specialists are really the, the drivers behind the quality standards assessment where each of those teams Mm -hmm. is working with the providers Mm -hmm. during the relicensing phase to have them participate in the assessment. And and they're also completing their own assessment. That's something we didn't mention is that this is a multi-informant assessment. So it's completed by the residential program director, the staff, the lead agency that's working with that home, the youth and the licensing specialist. So the overall assessment that will eventually be part of the accountability system is going to be a reflection of that comes from the uh, the stakeholders kind of viewpoint combined, which provides a better, a more valid representation of quality. But going back to the inter-rater reliability study, so because the licensing specialists are such an important part of facilitating the process, we're also getting really good initial psychometrics like in terms of reliability. Their assessment tool, we wanted to go that step further and make sure we could capture inter-rater reliability. And so for that, we have 
two pairs of licensing specialists that have selected a group of groups of residential homes mm -hmm. in their regions and they're completing two assessments. So we'll use that information to first assess inter-rater reliability and agreement and then see if there's some training or recommendations we can pull out of that to help provide some tools for the, the, the licensing specialist. And then the other big next step for this will be starting the outcomes development pilot. And so with this, we are working to identify a potential outcome measure that would span all the important domains of like safety, how the children are doing, well-being, as well as looking at like permanency outcomes, at least at the time when they uh, discharge from the program. So we're looking at identifying an assessment and then piloting that with a group of, say, 50 residential providers. And we'll use that to see how the quality standards ratings correlate with youth outcomes. That would be an additional step toward instrument validation, so validating that these are the quality standards that do lead to XYZ outcomes. And the other side of that, it could help identify within this set of 59 standards, are there some core standards that really rise to the top that seem to be the most pivotal to helping get the youth achieving the outcomes that we'd like to, to see. So, of course, this podcast is going to be very useful to our Florida partners, but we are also going to send this out nationally. And I'm curious if you both could kind of leave some final thoughts about how your work could inform the work they're doing and where they could find out more about the things that you're up to. We have had a lot of discussions with folks outside of the state, whether it's individual providers, DCFSs in other states, even internationally, there's been some interest just to speak to the scope of this, this work that we've done here in Florida. But I think this was even in the minds of some of our residential providers who are really invested in this process, mm -hmm. that what we're doing here does have implications beyond Florida. And so I think with that in mind, when we moved from here's the standards, which we are saying are broadly applicable to all residential settings. These are just the core standards. That from there, we developed the, the tool with this idea that this is a quality measurement system. And we wanted it to be one that's adaptable. So we're, we started big in Florida because we started from scratch and then we went statewide in one of the biggest states in the United States. So that was a big a big scaling up, but it could be something that maybe an individual provider in another state would like to engage in this, or it could be maybe like a, a particular organization with several residential providers. So we wanted to make it an, a system that's adaptable to small and large scale implementation. And so our converse, through our conversations, we've kind of started talking with people about what that could look like. But it does seem like when people are looking at the standard and where that's really important is with the residential providers themselves, with the other child welfare systems, they're connecting with them. They're saying, yes, I, I see that those are some of the core things, those are important. And, and so I think that in that way, there's, there's implications beyond. And it's not at this point, it's not just us saying we think there's, this has relevance beyond Florida. We're sort of getting other people saying, yes, we think that has relevance. How can we work with you to, to implement something or adapt that in, in our context? 
And then the other thing that feedback that I get in those or question that I get in those conversations has to do with, you know, I'll describe our process in Florida and then I often get the question of, but didn't the providers push back on that? And we didn't get nearly the pushback we thought. And in hindsight, we know that in the process of developing these standards, early on, the providers were engaged. So it wasn't like, here's a set of standards now, we're sort of imposing them on you. It was involving them, and in many ways, the providers themselves driving the initiative. So I think it's understanding that the residential providers, if given the opportunity and the tools, they want to engage in making their services the best that they can be. And so I think that's why, I'm not saying we didn't get any pushback, questions, oftentimes good, important questions from the providers that contributed to us being able to refine things in important ways. But I I think all in all, that's the reason there wasn't pushback, because they want to do the best they can. And if this can be an important catalyst for that, then I think they're ready to engage. I think it's exactly as Shamra mentioned. It's an opportunity for residential group care providers to really show the quality of service and the quality of care that they're providing. Yes, we've we've engaged them all along, and that's really been the underlying theme is no matter what side you're coming from with looking at the project, at the core of it is you're wanting to make sure that quality care is provided to the child, the youth that that is in that setting. And so this project does allow for us to get in there and say, these are the quality standards that we're looking at based off of research, based off of input from stakeholders, based off of input from from the youth. Shimmer also engaged some of the students at, at FSU who were previously in foster care on some of this early work. So it's it's really been a collaborative effort to say what does quality look like in a residential care setting and how can we then at some way measure it and show that measurement so that it will speak to the care that's being provided. So I think it's, it's to ultimately the benefit of the kids that we're serving that we are able to say, yes, we're providing quality care in this setting. And that would be the interest to, I think, any child welfare agency across the United States. Thank you, Shamra and Zandra, for joining us today and really breaking down how the Quality Standards Initiative and FFPSA will impact our residential group care. I certainly learned a lot from this episode, and I hope our listeners did too. Thank you both, and take care. Thank you. Thank you. I want to give a huge thanks to our guests, and we are so appreciative of their commitment to improving our child welfare system. If you want to learn more about this topic or contact these speakers, please visit www.ficw.fsu.edu. Stay safe and well.